0: Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom.
1: Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. For a week, the story about a murdered 22-year-old woman in Lincoln, Nebraska, was the talk not just of the state, but the entire country. Nancy Parker was a college graduate and young wife. Her husband had a somewhat high-profile job, locally anyway, as a forester in the county where they lived. He was just well-known enough that stories about Nancy's death always mentioned him. But it had been a week and Lincoln police had gotten nowhere, which made Lincoln residents antsy. If Nancy Parker's murder wasn't solved, it would mark the fourth homicide in about 20 years that someone had gotten away with. In hopes of ensuring that didn't happen, police turned to an expert. His name was John Reed, and he was famous in the law enforcement world for his interrogation techniques. Twelve hours after Reed sat down with Nancy's husband, 24-year-old Daryl Parker, he had what he had come for, a confession. The next day, December 22, 1955, a front-page Lincoln-Star newspaper headline blared, Daryl Parker Confesses Strangle Slaying of Wife. The interrogation was deemed such a success that it helped propel John Reed to international fame. Attorney Rabia Shadri.
2: The Reed technique is basically an interrogatory technique that he developed into a book. Then he started like a whole company and organization to train law enforcement. Like, it became the way to train law enforcement on how to interrogate suspects.
1: Not just in America, police all across the globe were using the Reed technique. But there was a problem. Daryl Parker was innocent. Yet the methods used to get him to falsely confess... Are still in practice to this day.
0: Selling a little. Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to do we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow.
1: One of my favorite recurring jokes from the animated series Bojack Horseman was when Bojack, who had starred in a TV show, would run into Mr. Peanut Butter, who had starred in a different TV show. And every single time, Mr. Peanut Butter would say,
0: What is this, a crossover episode?
1: Well, this episode of Crimes of the Centuries could be considered something of a crossover episode. That's because I first learned the basics of this case from the most recent season of the podcast Undisclosed, hosted by three attorneys I now consider friends, Colin Miller, Susan Simpson, and Rabia Chaudhry. Here's what I heard about it from host Rabia Chaudhry in episode 10 of The State vs. Jason Carroll. That is the core
2: of the read technique, to accuse a suspect until they give in. A reminder that this high-pressure technique is named after a former Chicago police officer named John Reed, who was able to extract a confession from a man named Daryl Parker, who admitted to murdering his wife. It's no small irony that Parker recanted his confession the very next day, but was still convicted despite the recantation. Later, Parker was exonerated when the guilty party was identified. So instead of having proven itself to be a dangerous failure, the Reed technique flourished and law enforcement officers since the 1950s have been trained in it.
1: I was driving in my car when I heard this bit, and first I screamed, what? And then I pulled over to send Robbie a message asking to talk about the case. I'm recording this in 2022, and I've had the benefit of reading story after story, year by year in newspaper archives. So I'm about to tell you how the tale unfolded for the general public, which was agonizingly slow over a nearly 70-year span. But I don't want to bury the lead here because it's too important. The craziest thing about this whole technique,
2: to me, about the story, is that Reed became the go-to technique, even though the case that made it famous turned out to be a wrongful conviction. It blows
1: my mind. It should blow everybody's mind. In fairness, Lincoln police didn't have the benefit of hindsight that we have, so they couldn't know with the certainty we have now that Parker's confession was bullshit. All they knew is that they had a horrible murder on their hands and a town full of people demanding that they solve it. That's how a lot of wrongful confession stories begin. So let's look at this one. Daryl Parker seemed to be on a predetermined path in life. His middle name was Forrest, and his goal was to become a forester. And that's someone who works with trees and stuff. It seemed a fitting occupation for the son of an Iowa farmer. Born in 1931, Darrell was the second son of Lynn and Marie Parker, who owned a farm in the city of Anderson. By all accounts, Darrell was a good student, the type of kid who got his photo in the local paper next to a cow for winning champion dairy heifer honors at the county fair. He seemed grounded and ambitious. As a freshman in high school in his hometown of Henderson, Iowa, he was elected class secretary in 1946. For Mother's Day of 1949, he and a friend sang the song That Wonderful Mother of Mine in front of the congregation at their Methodist church. He presented his proud mom, Marie, a bedtime prayer reminder as a Mother's Day gift. After he graduated high school, Darrell went to Iowa State University, where he met a fellow student named Nancy Ellen Morrison. She was two years younger than Darrell and from northwest Des Moines, which was still rural, but not quite so much as Henderson. Nancy's father was a public school teacher named Robert Morrison, her mother, a homemaker named Joy. According to the 1940 census, Nancy was an only child. She and Daryl quickly clicked. They had a lot in common. Nancy was in the Alpha Gamma Delta sorority. Daryl was a member of two different fraternities. In the fall of 1953, they announced their engagement at a sorority party that both sets of parents attended. The following March, just a couple of months before Daryl would graduate, they had their spring wedding. Nancy, a bookish-looking woman with dark hair and cat-eye glasses, wore a blue satin wedding gown and carried a Bible covered in blue satin to match. The two had a low-key honeymoon in Chicago, and at first stayed in Ames, Iowa, which is home to Iowa State. By all accounts, Darryl was really talented in his field. He was invited to join an agricultural society only open to the top 15% of seniors. As soon as he graduated, he set out to find a job in forestry, and he found one right away. Diseased trees had concerned folks in Lincoln, Nebraska so much that they had earmarked nearly $4,000 to hire a forester for the first time. Daryl landed the brand new position, and he and his wife moved to Lincoln. Nancy got a new job, too, working at a place called Gooch Milling Company. Things seemed to be lining up. And then, on December 14, 1955, Daryl Parker went to work. He said goodbye to Nancy and to their new 10-week-old collie. The couple didn't have kids yet. They were starting with a puppy. When Daryl stopped back home a few hours later for lunch, as he typically did, he made a horrific discovery.
2: Nancy Parker was found in their bedroom and she had been bound and it was clear that she had been pretty badly beaten and strangled.
1: The assault seemed sexual in nature. Nancy was mostly nude. But detectives who quickly descended on the scene weren't certain she'd been raped. What they did know is that she had her hands tied behind her back, a rope around her neck, and two men's handkerchiefs stuffed into her mouth, apparently to muffle her screams. The handkerchiefs were embossed with the letter D. Detectives were optimistic they would crack this case, outwardly, anyway, They told reporters that they had solved crimes in the past with far fewer clues left behind than this one. But the truth was that the parker's small two-bedroom home was fairly isolated. The house was provided by the city as part of Daryl's pay, and the closest neighbor was a block away. One of the biggest clues police had at first was that several people reported seeing a 1949 or 1950 black Ford parked outside the home Wednesday morning. Daryl had an alibi for the morning of course because he'd been at work in fact that day he was in a meeting that everyone remembered because he had been assigned to oversee the city's christmas tree even though the parkers were fairly new to town Nancy's murder shocked the close-knit community when one farmer about 7 miles from lincoln noticed a stranger in his barn he called the cops straight away The police did pick up somebody that was some kind of local guy with a record The guy looked like a good suspect at first. He had previously worked in the same department as Daryl, so cops thought maybe it was someone with a grudge. When they found the guy in the barn, he was scratched, bruised, hungry, and half-frozen, authorities told reporters. But after some questioning and alibi checking, they let him go. The murder dominated front pages in Nebraska and Iowa, but the story didn't stop there. Lengthy wire stories about the case were printed in dozens of newspapers nationwide. Several ran a numbered list of collected clues. Beyond the Ford, supposedly seen outside the home, police had car tracks, part of the Ford's license plate. Witnesses agreed that the first number was two, though the rest wasn't clear. Fingerprints, bed clothing, the rope and twine binding Nancy's hands and neck, a sweatshirt she had been wearing that was torn or cut, And finally, her bra, which also had been torn or cut. Before they had even reached their second wedding anniversary, Daryl Parker found himself at his new bride's funeral back in Iowa, where the two had met. He had no idea that even before Nancy's body was in the ground, some detectives had decided he was the one who put her there.
0: Selling a little, or a lot, Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com slash audioboom.
3: With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. The
1: first time police questioned Daryl Parker about his wife Nancy's murder, it lasted three hours, after which reporters described Daryl leaving the police department in tears, his father by his side. And then it seemed police backed off him, at least as a suspect. His home was under heavy police guard, supposedly because of the theory some held that Nancy was targeted because Daryl was her husband, which theoretically could mean Daryl was in danger too. Daryl, meanwhile, said he couldn't understand what had happened. He had left the house around 7.15 that morning. When he left, Nancy was fine and fully dressed, wearing a sweatshirt and blue jeans. She told him that she planned to go downtown after she cleaned the breakfast dishes, but there was no evidence she ever left the house again. In fact, one of Nancy's co-workers at the milling company, a woman named Opal Klausner, told police that she had started calling the Parker home around 8 a.m. to talk to Nancy, but got no reply. She called again and again until finally, around noon, a police officer picked up the phone and shared the devastating news. Police publicly begged for tips. Police Chief Joseph Carroll said, We will welcome the most insignificant information that might possibly have bearing on the case. Nothing would be overlooked, he promised. As the days passed, it's clear from contemporary news stories that police were getting frustrated. On December 19th, so five days after the murder, Lancaster County attorney Elmer Scheel hinted that he was going to ask an outsider for help. He told a reporter that someone had suggested a certain technique be used to break the case. He declined to elaborate. Just two days later came the headline that Blair Darrell had confessed. One of the subheads beneath the story was admission given to Chicago expert. Rabia Chaudry again. John Reed at the
2: time was a, a polygraph expert. I mean, this is like 1955
1: when there's a lot of credence given to polygraphs. She's right. When you read the news stories at the time, it's clear that polygraphs were seen as cutting-edge stuff. And Reed had not only been in the field for a good decade, but he'd made some tweaks to the machine that were heralded. The polygraph machine he had inherited when he started working in the 1930s was designed to measure changes in blood pressure, heart rate, and respiration rate. Reed told reporters that clever criminals could figure out how to control those things, but, he said, they couldn't control involuntary muscle spasms. So he started measuring for that, too. But for Reed, criminal investigations didn't rely solely on polygraphs. No, those were mostly used to narrow the suspect pool and or to intimidate people by giving them the test, telling them that they failed when they didn't and hoping that this confrontation would lead to a confession. As such, the interrogation that followed the polygraph was crucial to read. He co-wrote a book about his method and also founded a business based on it. That business, still in operation today, posts training videos online. Here, the instructor explains what should happen if and only if the interrogator has determined that the interview subject was probably involved in the crime.
4: Then, and only then, do the nine steps of interrogation become appropriate. The foundation for the nine steps of interrogation is empathy, understanding, sound reasoning, and logic.
1: Now, these are the instructions today. They have, of course, been fine-tuned in the nearly 70 years since Reed interrogated Daryl Parker about his wife's murder. Today, the trainers are careful to say
4: it's important to understand that during this process, the interrogation process, under no circumstance should the investigator threaten the subject with physical harm or make any promises of leniency or threaten them with a more severe punishment if they don't confess. The interrogation must be conducted in accordance with the guidelines established by the courts.
1: All of that sounds good, right? Threatening is bad, physical harm is bad, et But then there's
4: this. Once the subject decides to tell us the truth, and they give us corroborating details to substantiate the confession, then of course we'll take a recorded or written statement.
2: Rabia has some thoughts. They're going into this with a presumption of guilt.
1: Take the phrase, once the subject decides to tell us the truth, meaning... This questioning, which you might have noticed happens before a recorded or written statement is taken, is to continue until the interrogator hears what he or she already believes is the truth. I mean, how else can you interpret that? How can you know you've reached a point in which the suspect is telling you the truth if you're open-minded about what that truth is? If you're open-minded, you don't know what the truth is. Investigators are supposed to be gathering information But as Rabia said, This is not information gathering, like from a neutral
2: perspective. This is like, we believe you're guilty and we're just going to help you tell us you're guilty.
1: Now, that's not to say that using the read technique has never delivered proper confessions. It has. The technique is really effective at getting confessions. And as we learned from the episode detailing the Hicks-Snook case, sometimes guilty people crack when they're relentlessly questioned. The trouble is... The technique can crack innocent people too. So, these psychologically, they're like manipulative
2: ways to get people to just eventually break down and out of sheer exhaustion, just say, Okay. I mean, you know, just give them what you want, because a lot of times the officers will say, this is just, this just all be over. This will all be over. If you just, you know, come clean and unburden your soul, all these things. And it works particularly well, obviously on people who are more vulnerable, like young people, people with mental illness, people with psychological or emotional like disorders, things like that. I mean, it's going to work better with people. Imagine you're somebody who's on some kind of medication and you haven't gotten your medication in 20 hours. Right. And now you're like, imagine what sleep deprivation does to like a 17-year-old, right? I'm like, you know, it's, there's so many factors at
1: play. Daryl Parker cracked. He had found his wife murdered, attended her funeral, and been interrogated twice for a few hours each before John Reed came in, hooked him up to a polygraph, told him he'd failed, and used his interrogation technique until Daryl said, yes, I did it. We'll outline that technique in a minute. Now, the news story the next day provided his motive, according to Reed. Supposedly, before work on December 14th, Daryl had wanted to have sex. Nancy was quote-unquote cold to him about it, and he snapped. He strangled her, then realizing what he had done, staged the scene to look like a sexual assault. And then he went to work, leaving his wife's dead body in their bedroom, only to come home at lunchtime and feign despair upon discovering her. He placed a call to police at 12.07 p.m. saying, my wife has been strangled. Daryl recanted his confession the very next day, and while he had a lot of friends and family willing to publicly express skepticism about his confession, police, and Reed in particular, stood by it. Recanting, Reed said, was typical. That's exactly what a guilty person would do.
0: Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom.
3: With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need.
1: I try to be transparent about my biases when reporting out these stories, so let me disclose that the first murder I covered as a young reporter ended up being a false confession case. I say that with reasonable confidence because the teenagers originally charged were set free after two other men were not only found with a murder weapon in the trunk of their car, but one of the two outright confessed with details only the killer would have known. Now to this day, there are people mostly law enforcement officials in the jurisdiction where the murder occurred, who believed those original teens, the ones released and never subsequently charged, were involved in the killing. They must have known the other two guys, these people argue, because there's no way that the interviews the original suspects endured were the types to elicit false confessions. And one of the kids tried to explain, the police were scary, I was terrified, and I knew I didn't do it so there wouldn't be evidence tying me to the case. He was too naive to realize that his confession would be that evidence. That's what happened with Daryl Parker. On Wednesday, December 21, 1954, he was asked to arrive at the Lincoln Police Department by noon for questioning. He and his parents had been staying with Nancy's family in Des Moines in the aftermath of the murder. Daryl drove alone the nearly 200 miles back to Lincoln, arriving before noon. According to the Lincoln Star, he was questioned for a few hours by Reed, then left in custody while five other people were questioned and polygraphed. The second time Daryl faced Reed, Reed presented him a statement he was asked to sign. The statement said that Daryl killed his wife because she'd spurned him. This is attorney Dan Friedman on an episode of Insider
4: Exclusive. The next day, they showed him a copy of the signed confession. His lawyer did. And he was shocked that he had done such a thing. He had no recollection of it at all. The
1: jury believed otherwise. Daryl Parker was convicted of murder in 1956 though he steadfastly maintained that he had nothing to do with the crime, which of course doesn't mean much. Guilty people can claim they're innocent too, which is why few questioned the read technique in the aftermath of the case. Stories about Parker fighting to have his conviction overturned weren't on front pages, and they invariably included the legally accurate phrase, convicted wife killer, Daryl Parker. Stories about the Reed technique spreading to departments worldwide, meanwhile, cited the Daryl Parker conviction as proof that Reed's technique worked. And for Reed, this was his livelihood. He'd started in law enforcement as a Chicago police officer and developed a reputation as a solid interrogator. He considered polygraph tests crucial to his process. From the start, though, it's worth noting that some of his confessors quickly recanted. I found a story in the Rhinelander, Wisconsin Daily News from September 24th, 1941, that reported the recantation of a confession by a suspect named Herman DeHart. The year before, the 30-year-old had confessed to the 1935 slaying of an unnamed vagrant. He quickly repudiated that confession, saying that Reed, quote, told me he would have police blacken my eyes and beat me up unless I confessed. He said police wouldn't let me sleep until I talked. That's why I made the confession and signed it." Though DeHart had multiple witnesses testify who placed him in Kentucky when the murder occurred, a jury found him guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced him to life in prison. He eventually was released on parole, but even afterward, he kept fighting, appealing his case all the way to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. When that didn't work, he lobbied the governor for executive clemency. He died in 1975, having never cleared his name. As for Reed, cases like DeHart's were huge wins and vital to his career. In 1942, the same year DeHart was convicted, he and a guy named Fred Inbau, also a Chicago law enforcement officer, wrote the first version of a book called Lie Detection and Criminal Interrogation. At first, it was something of a sleeper. Then, in 1946, Reed attracted national attention when he used his lie detector test and interview techniques to clear one man and help convict another in the slaying and dismemberment of a six-year-old girl. He parlayed that apparent success into a business venture, a firm called John E. Reed and Associates Polygraph Examiners, which nowadays is shortened to just
4: John E. Reed and Associates.
1: Again, this is from company information posted online. This video was dated March 17th, 2022, so just earlier this year. And the voice you hear is identified as Joseph P. Buckley, the company's president.
4: For the past seven decades, Johnny Reed & Associates has been developing and refining effective interviewing and interrogation techniques. The Reed technique is now the most widely used approach to question subjects in the world.
1: In 1954, Reed handled the testing for the first lie detector evidence ever admitted in an Illinois court. That same year, right around the time Daryl and Nancy were getting married, a new edition of his interrogation book was released. I found a review of that edition in the McCook Daily Gazette that was, even back then, as skeptical as Rabia is today. One paragraph read, quote, The authors also endeavor to justify their credo with tangent reasoning. To their own satisfaction, at least, they tell why guilty persons avoid lie detectors like a plague. Persons with guilty consciences, we are solemnly told, try to postpone a test, are late for an appointment to take it, explain beforehand that they are nervous and will show up guilty on the dials anyhow, will decline to answer questions. However, say these authors... The truly innocent person is a delight. He requests a test and is eager for it. end quote. It's clear the reviewer wasn't convinced, but a lot of people were. Boosted enormously by the Parker case, Reed sold more and more books and set up his Chicago-based training business. The more Reed spread, the more confessions it helped get, because it's objectively really good at that. Here, I'm going to explain the nine steps of the Read Technique with help from Friendly Forensics, a UK-based YouTuber.
5: The first step is direct confrontation.
1: The interrogator presents supposed facts about the case, qualified because they're allowed to lie and say they have evidence that they don't have, and physically gets close to the suspect to make them uncomfortable and raise their stress levels. The next step is done
5: in a non-threatening manner. Theme development is where the investigator will offer an explanation as to why the suspect committed the crime by making some sort of moral excuse or justification.
1: Step three is to deal with denials.
5: Interrupting all attempts at denial helps to keep the suspect's confidence low and generate feelings of powerlessness.
1: Instead of allowing outright denials, the interrogator is trained to steer the suspect toward verbalized objections. As in, I would never hurt a child, my best friend had been abused by his dad, and there's no way I would put anyone through that. The interrogator could then massage that objection a bit.
5: An investigator
1: using the read
5: technique may respond by saying, That's good. You're saying that you wouldn't ever plan to do that. It was out of your control. It was just a mistake. By this point in the interrogation, the suspect should be feeling frustrated and unsure of themselves.
1: And they might be getting tired, which leads to step five, keeping their attention. The interrogator is trained to make sure that the suspect doesn't zone out or detach from their surroundings. This is done by making a lot of eye contact, pulling their chair close to the suspect, presenting hypothetical questions. Anyone who's listened to season one of my other podcast accused will remember that. The boyfriend falsely confessed after being asked what would he have done if he had found his girlfriend alive rather than dead. Well, I would have kissed her, he said. The interrogator flipped this. Okay, so you got there and you kissed her. What happened next? The interrogator is trained to make it clear, hey, I'm an ally here. I want to help you, and I can't help you if you don't tell me the truth. Imagine the suspect has been telling the truth. Around this stage, they're starting to think, well, shit, that's what I've been doing, and you refuse to believe me. They feel trapped. It might show outwardly. Their shoulders might hunch. Maybe they even start to cry, which leads to step six. If the suspect
5: becomes emotional or cries at this point, It is important for them to feel supported and comforted by the investigator, as this is often a sign of remorse or guilt. Saying something like, I know how much you've tried to keep this inside, but I'm glad to see those tears because they tell me you're sorry this thing ever happened. You are sorry you did this, aren't you?
1: Throughout all of this, by the way, the interrogator would probably already be doing what's technically step seven in the official list of steps. That's watching body language. Shifting in the seat, changing positions of the arms or legs. All these are supposedly signs not of an uncomfortable chair or fatigue, but of guilt. The next step is super important. This is when the investigator offers two possible motives for the crime. One minimizes the suspect's culpability, as in, it's a more socially acceptable motive. You didn't mean to kill your wife. You just snapped and lost control, right? That could happen to anyone. The other motive offered suggests that you're a terrible, awful person definitely going to hell. You planned this murder for five years, right? You killed her for the life insurance policy.
5: The phrasing of the alternative question is important and ideally would require the suspect to merely nod their head or say yes, as this makes it easier for them to admit their guilt. The investigator must develop any admissions of guilt that followed from the previous stage into a legally binding confession.
1: Last comes step nine, taking that oral confession you finally got and either typing it up or having your suspect write it out. Now, notice that based on Reed's own training videos, none of this is videotaped until step nine. All the wearing down, which could last for hours, is undocumented. So a jury sees only the end result. And often, it works. It did in Daryl Parker's case. He was found guilty of killing his wife, Nancy Parker. For more than a decade behind bars, he told anyone who would listen that he was innocent. Lucky for him, some people believed him. His parents and friends raised money on his behalf, which was important because... Once you have been convicted,
2: it is nearly impossible to overturn a conviction.
1: Rabia knows this because she's worked on wrongful conviction cases through her podcast Undisclosed. She and her co-hosts have examined 24 cases that they believe were instances of wrongful conviction. Ten of those defendants have been exonerated. Two were granted stays of execution, one received a full commutation, and one more was granted parole. On the surface, that might make it sound like all you need to overturn a conviction is a good podcast examination, but each of these cases had languished for years, exhausting all other avenues before they reached the trio with Undisclosed. That's because police and prosecutors remain so adamant that they couldn't have made a mistake in their cases that they typically fight any challenges suggesting otherwise. They don't want to hear from new witnesses. They don't want to agree to DNA testing. They just want the case to stay closed because, as one prosecutor I investigated put it, the victims' families need closure. Here's how Daryl Parker's case ended. He spent 14 years in prison, during which time another felon named Wesley Peary confessed that it was he who killed Nancy Parker, plus about a dozen other people. Daryl's lawyers tried to get his conviction tossed based on that confession, but that approach didn't work. Instead, Daryl's conviction was finally tossed in 1969, when an appellate court ruled that his confession had been given involuntarily. Parker maintained his innocence, but the next year accepted parolee status rather than face trial again. So he was out, but he was still a convicted killer, and he stayed that way for decades. In searching for him year by year, I found that his case would regularly be mentioned in Nebraska and Iowa newspapers especially, along with the fact that Daryl had been convicted. Rarely was there mention of the other confession. In 1982, John Reed died. His obituary said he solved more than 300 murder cases. This is Joseph Buckley again.
4: The authoritative text. Our book, Criminal Interrogation and Confessions, now in its fifth edition, is considered by the courts and practitioners to be the seminal text for proper interviewing and interrogation techniques. The book has been translated into numerous languages around the world.
1: Now, in fairness, Buckley addresses critics' concerns and talks about how the technique and its training has evolved over the years and keeps evolving.
4: We never teach or recommend that the investigator should try to increase the suspect's feeling of despair or hopelessness. In fact, we teach that that is an improper tactic to use. We have many cases on our website that point out the fact that threatening somebody with possible inevitable consequences if they don't confess, is a very high-risk factor in causing false confession. So we teach not to do this. You don't want to create an environment where they feel desperate or hopeless. You want them to feel that by telling the truth, they'll be able to explain exactly what and how and why they did what they did.
1: Still, it's worth noting that Innocence Project data points to 25% of wrongful conviction cases overturned by DNA testing involved a false confession. Like Herman Dehart. Daryl Parker kept insisting he was innocent. Unlike DeHart, someone finally listened to Parker. He was pardoned in 1991, which on its own didn't fully clear him. Pardons don't declare someone innocent. They simply wipe clean the conviction and restore the person's civil status. It was another 20 years after that pardon, so more than half a century after his wife's murder, that Parker was finally declared innocent and given an apology by Nebraska's attorney general, a newscast from 2012.
3: It's been a long battle for the 80 year old, and he credits his faith and wife of 41 years, Ellie, helping him to get through it. Now, Parker says he's ready to go back to the yellow house where his life was forever changed.
0: The eagle has landed. Only
2: in the U.S. of A. could we have made an ending like this. Now, my dear Nancy,
1: Can rest in peace. Daryl was awarded $500,000 for his wrongful conviction. As you heard, despite the cloud that hung over him, he did remarry and lived a productive life, getting a job in forestry soon after his release. He died just a few months ago in February 2022. The technique that wrongly landed him in prison is still used today. To research this story, I interviewed Rabia Shadri of the Undisclosed podcast, which sadly is coming to an end, but do check it out if you haven't already. Rabia also hosts Nighty Night with Rabia Shadri. I read every newspaper story I could find on the case, which was quite a few. The only book I found written about it wasn't in stock, though I'll mention it because it seems to have played a role in the ultimately clearing Daryl. The book was called Barbarous Souls, and it was co-written by Stephen Driesen, the first expert on false confessions I ever interviewed, and also playwright David L. Strauss, who'd penned a play about the case in 1992. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.
0: Selling a little or a lot...